Welcome to the Justice Report. I'm your host, Salam. And I'm Jam. So Salam, today we're going to be talking about some pretty exciting issues. We are going to be talking about a lot of exciting issues, unfortunately, during a time of great chaos. Uh, and as we know, you know, we're not only hit with a pandemic, but we're also hit with protests happening all across the state uh, for good measures, for good reasons. And as a result of that, the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus has put forward some priorities for the upcoming special session. Mm. And I have a very difficult time, as you're going to hear in today's show, saying the words special session. It is definitely a tongue twister. And I mean, like Don Lemon says, Americans are dying of two deadly diseases, coronavirus and racism. So today we're going to get a little bit deeper into that. And without further ado, should we get into the show? Let's get started. Today's guest on the episode of The Justice Report is Delegate Jeff Bourne. Delegate Jeff Bourne is a delegate for Virginia's 71st District. If you live in Richmond, he is likely your delegate. Before uh, working at the State House, he was a school board member. Uh, for all our audience members out there that consider themselves somewhat politically active in the Richmond community, you've probably come in contact with Jeff. You probably know him on a first name basis by this point. If you haven't, shame on you. He's very accessible. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's uh, It's been a pleasure so far trying to get to this point where we're actually doing the interview. We, we are privileged to have you uh, here with us, Delgado Bourne. So thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, for, to be here with us. I mean, you uh, the Legislative Black Caucus just uh, announced its special session uh, agenda priorities. Man, Jim, can you say special session three times fast? That's really difficult. Uh, special session, special session, special session. Wow. Yeah, you you were you're garbling at the end. Yeah, you're I garbling. can't do it. Can't do it. Got tongue tied. <laughs> it's 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 hard. So um, we're we're just we're thankful for you for you to be here, delegate board, and we're gonna go through uh, this list or, or some of the list to see how the legislative Blackhawks will come together to push these policies sure. forward during a, a, a really impactful time. That sounds good. I'm, I'm hope, hopefully I will be able to answer uh, all your questions, and if not, um, I'll make sure you know who can answer the detailed questions. So real quick, most of our listeners know about the legislative session. They know that typically happens in January and February. Can you briefly describe what a special, special session is, why it happens, and what function it serves? Sure. So a special session uh, is generally called when um, there's a there's a uh, an acute issue that has to be dealt with. So um, it might be that uh, the budget conferees or the budget wasn't actually finalized um, prior to the to the adjournment um, of the regular session. Or um, it may be like last year, um, we had a special session on gun violence reduction because um, there was a tragedy earlier on in the year and they set up a, a special um, select committee and so um, those sorts of things. Um, it really is to, to try and address um, very acute problems in a very finite period of time, something that may arise between the end of a regular session and the beginning of that next regular session. Last year's special session was about 38 minutes long, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there were, there were plenty of folks on the other side of the aisle that probably thought it was 38 minutes too long. Um, but we saw... Um, not to not to spike the football, but uh, I think we saw what the voters believed in that uh, 38 minutes was far too short a time period to discuss um, what is really um, a, 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 
a pandemic that's that's currently eating at Virginia and the country, which is gun violence. Mm-hmm. So for this for this year, we see um, at the top of the list is uh, the head the heading of addressing and combating racism directly, and then four points. And one mm-hmm. of the, the first point is something we actually talked about last week, or a part of what we talked about last week regarding maternal mortality in uh, the black community. Yeah. So declaring racism a public health crisis in the Commonwealth of Virginia, why is this on the list? Well, I mean, I think it's it's. Uh, extremely important to get on this list, if for no other reason than um, racism systemically and institutionally has a very detrimental and has had a very detrimental effect on the health of black, brown, minority communities. When you look at poor educational settings, poor housing options, poor health care, which has only been exacerbated and highlighted by the COVID-19 crisis, these types of things really are a health crisis. Um, and so um, not to mention, you know, when you look at the, the disparities between and among different um, demographics with related to um, criminal justice, um, those things are, are health issues because they affect and have so many cascading uh, negative effects on families and people. Um, it really is um, a health crisis um, in the true sense of the word. And what effect has the social movements we've seen all around the country and in Richmond in particular kind of arising in response to George Floyd's death um, and really bring in all these other elements of white supremacy? How has that influenced the Legislative Black Caucus's decision to set these priorities? How has it changed how ambitious you want to be this year? And how is it really affecting your, your decision-making process and thoughts moving into this special session? Well, I think for the, for speaking specifically for the, not for the Black Caucus, but to the Black Caucus, these issues are not new to us. Um, mm-hmm. the, many of these issues we have been fighting for, advocating for, uh, and supporting for, for many, many years, um, long before I got there, long before some of the other members of Black Caucus movement. You know, our predecessors have been, have been fighting these battles um, for a long time. And so I think what we've seen is, um, one, obviously the political makeup of the legislature has changed. So there's probably a little bit more appetite to deal with some of these issues in a really meaningful way. Mm. Uh, but I also think that the protests, um, the, the energized advocacy efforts that are going on around the Commonwealth uh, and the country um, have awakened um, uh, some people who might not have been as eager to talk about these issues and to deal with these policy issues in the way that we propose to deal with them. And so um, I think out of all the, the sort of angst and stress and, and sort of tense um, moments that we've had, um, this, that, that aspect, that concept is really, really a positive outcome of this because I think we will see um, a lot of meaningful change um, in, in the months to come. Mm-hmm. And I, I see some echoes of that in, in the language of this release. Uh, for instance, you have creating a civilian review board with subpoena power as the mm-hmm. very first line item on under holding police accountable. Could you talk a bit about um, what that might look like? Sure. I mean, so so conceptually, it is really a a, a panel, um, a board that um, would 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 have some. Uh, level of oversight, accountability measures um, to investigate these these incidents of police misconduct, overuse of force, those sorts of things. And really, it's a it's a great tool to 
um, bridge the transparency gap, the wide transparency gap that um, the community feels um, with the police departments um, when you're dealing in, in, in the middle of situations like this. And so um, it is important in those situations to get a, an independent, objective um, sort of group of people to, to look at these things. And, and while the details, I'm sure, are still being um, sort of, you know, ferreted out, um, that's conceptually what we're talking about is making sure that um, we do have independent, objective um, groups that are looking into these scenarios and these situations um, such that um, we really do get to the truth, whether that's good, bad or indifferent, uh, making sure that that process is tra- open and transparent um, for, for everybody that that um, these these officers and, and these groups um, serve. Now, one of the policies is to uncover racial disparities in all areas of policy and creating solutions to bridge the gaps. I, I don't want to toot our own horn, but that's pretty much what we've been doing, uh, not, yeah. not over the course of this, um, this series, but this whole month, really, uh, talking about all these policies. So I hope uh, some of the LBC members are avid listeners of the Justice Report and getting some <laughs> ideas of, of where uh, the help is needed. But of course, it's a lot of a lot of uh, what you're dealing with is lived experience. So you know way, way more than us uh, on, on this issue. So uh, we're all just preaching to the choir yeah, I mean, here. And that's one of the things that, that um, again, trying to take a pause about this is that these issues are not new, the disparities are not new, and there's a wealth of data and, and groups um, out there and advocacy um, professionals that, that, that really do are the expert, the subject matter experts on this and have, you know, probably uh, more sets of data than, than um, anyone would care to really read, every, you know, in, in one sitting. But um, to that end, um, we do rely on groups and, and programs like this um, uh, to really try and find that needle in the haystack of maybe there's something different that they have uncovered or the, or, or the way that they've sort of collected and, and analyzed the data that, that really helps us sort of put the better legislative proposal together. So over the course of the past 150 years, we've seen quite a few amendments to the U.S. Constitution. You know, the you know it's heralded in America, at least, as the greatest constitution in all the world. Oh, you know, we had amendments after the Civil War. We had amendments after the Civil Rights Movement. And you would think that regarding uncovering racial disparities in areas of policy shouldn't have to be anything because all of these issues were solved amendments, but we've seen that people get trickier in how they want to create those racial disparities. What are some policies that exist right now um, outside of redlining that still exists today, outside of um, that area, like that you're seeing that can be changed during special session? I think the the one thing that I think comes to mind first are sort of the mandatory minimums and sentencing guidelines, this, the way that we, we um, penalize um, folks who have broken the law. Um, I think even some of the applications of those laws are, are still inherently um, racially tinged and, and skewed. Um, How? Uh, well, I think, you know, when you look at sort of the pretextual stops, so um, how many pretextual stops and how many people are getting pulled over for broken taillights, and then the officer then has sort of the ability to go further than just issuing a ticket for that stoplight or that broken taillight, um, which is really one of the reasons why I think uh, we worked hard um, not to get off on a tangent, but on the um, 
texting while driving bill because mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. For, for it to get um, the majority of the Blackhawks' support, you know, we had to have a data collection. We had to have um, a delayed enactment date so that we could do the training and, and, and um, public education. Um, and so, so it's those sorts of things, I think, in the application of um, the laws and the, and, and the criminal justice system uh, that, that come to mind first. I mean, we, we, we don't have parole. Uh, we don't have, um, you know, automatic expungement. You know, marijuana is still, um, it's decriminalized, but it's not legal. Um, and so I think we still got five days on that. I think we still got five well, days on that. For all the listeners, we got five days. Touche, touche, touche. Well, at the time of this recording, when it goes out, I think we'll be a lot closer. Uh, but, you know, and, and then when you look at like, uh, you know, the, the, the education setting, um, we see the numbers of so many of our black and brown kids and um, those students with uh, who might be special ed or have uh learning challenges, um, those are the ones that are being disproportionately affected by our discipline practices. So we've started to chip away at the, the school to prison pipeline. So those are just a couple of examples um, where where those those policies can be changed and should be changed to, to bring a more level playing field uh, in an equitable uh, sense to to these these laws. Earlier, you said a term called mandatory minimum. For our listeners who may not know what that means, could you define that? Sure. So that's that's saying if if you are convicted of X crime, your your sentence is going to be uh, no fewer than X years and no more than Y years. Um, and you know when you look at the types of crimes that these are really bad for, and, and even all crimes, um, you know we see much much more um, black and brown people being convicted and sent to jail, um, even though we're uh, a smaller portion of the overall percent uh, population. So uh, when you're talking about mandatorily um, imprisoning someone for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, um, you know, that's disproportionately affecting black communities because we are, we are getting convicted at a higher rate. Mm. And something else that appears on this agenda is uh, something known as the Marcus Alert. Uh, for some of the folks that are listening, they might not they might know what that is. Um, and it actually originates in Orr City here in Richmond. Could you yes. talk a bit about where the Marcus Alert comes from and what it will sure. do if enacted? Sure. So, and and this is this is a proposal that I am um, extremely proud to to be carrying. Once we can introduce this legislation, I've talked with. Um, Marcus's family about that and, and really um, wanted to get their buy-in and on me being the patron of it because um, to have their buy-in, to have the stakeholders they've been working with for, for far too long before this is going to be implemented, um, you know, I wanted to make sure I was sensitive to that and, and you know, um, go about it the right way. And so generally speaking, what this bill will do is create a mechanism and an alert that when a law enforcement officer sort of interacts or interdicts um, on the uh, a person who is clearly or identifiably having a mental health crisis or may need mental health services, that alert goes out to a mental health or behavioral specialist who can come to the scene and help de-escalate, help address, um, so that we don't have another tragedy um, like we had in Richmond, where uh, Marcus David Peters was clearly in the throes of a mental health condition and ultimately ended up um, being gunned down by by a police officer. And so that's conceptually how we'll do it uh, and what the bill will do. 
Um, obviously, we're, we're still working through details and I've got some engagement meetings and, and, and Zoom calls with, with the, the advocacy groups that have really been working on this um, uh, in, in earnest. And so I, I certainly want to uh, make it the best bill that I can and engage them. And, and, and because if it doesn't satisfy what they believe, then, then I've probably done it wrong if we go forward. Now, that is going to come at the point of crisis. Mm-hmm. What is going to help people who uh, are going through mental health problems throughout their life um, get help before they have to reach that crisis point? Well, I think I, I, I mean, it, that ties directly back into kind of the first question about how these systemic and institutional racist um, things are, are inherently a public health crisis. And one of the things that um, you know, in the black community that's, that has been, um, I think, for far too long taboo is really addressing your mental health from a from a professional perspective. And, and, and I will admit that I, too, had those sort of ill-conceived thoughts. Um, but, you know, I mean, we all need help. We're all flawed. And so making sure that that we really invest the resources that are necessary um, to really provide those mental health services to the communities that need it um, the most and that, that have been short shrifted for far too long. And so really, it's, it's, we're, we're going to try and address this from a holistic perspective. And, and that's really a budget item, uh, making sure that we are investing in our CSBs and our community health care providers and, and all those sorts of things that are absolutely necessary to not address just the physical health, but the mental health, because uh, mental health challenges can obviously um, lead to um, physical health challenges. So we want to make sure we're proactive on um, all those fronts. And that relates to another item I'm seeing where you talk about divesting from large law enforcement budgets and investing that money back into the community. How do you intend to fight for those investments till they get born? And where would you like to see them? I mean, I have, um, as you said at the outset, I served on the school board in Richmond, and um, I believe that that education is the single biggest thing we can invest in to to improve the quality of life for everyone. Um, So so that looks to me like really investing in our education and community services um, that we're providing. Um, You know, in in Richmond, it's been interesting, um, and and for the listeners who, who have been here a long time or do research, um, you know, mid to late 90s, Richmond was a really bad place. It was a murder capital. Um, you know, the list of horribles goes on and on. And what the city of Richmond did was they made strategic and significant investments in public safety and law enforcement because they wanted to, like a lot of communities, reduce the violent crime in, in, in the city. Well, we've gotten to a place where we see now um, our law enforcement officials, our elected officials touting this the idea that Violent crime has gone down. We, we, you know, we're much safer now than we were 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, but we're still spending the same amount of dollars on that. Uh, and so, um, for me, if we're going to see the type of improvements in uh, at-risk communities that we want to see, we need that type of investment in public education, these other healthcare, housing, um, because we, we we haven't seen um, a peace dividend. Um, as a result of, of our apparent decrease in violent crime. And we're seeing some of those uh, those big toys that police have access to in Richmond on a regular basis now. Um, and we're seeing 
night after night, people standing up and continuing to demand justice. Do you have any words for the folks that are going out there and risking their lives every night to raise awareness about racial injustice in America, particularly in Richmond? Um, well, first and foremost, I would I would certainly um, thank them um, because um, what they're doing is critically important to making the progress that we all want to make. And if you're any student of history, you understand that um, the agitators, the protesters, the the, the, the allies, the, the committed folks, um, it's it, it's really um, a necessary part of the change. Uh, you look at the civil rights movement, um, you know, the, the horrific pictures and, and things that were done then. Um, and so first is, is, is just thank you. Um, I, I, I would also, um, you know, just say, hey, like, I want them to be as careful as possible um, and do everything in their power to sort of adhere to the, the, the rules of the road right now. Um, and and but I know that's difficult in the moment, especially when you are, um, you know, sort of in a very tense moment and not sure what's going on. And, you know, you're not sure why maybe you're 100 yards away or 50 yards away and you see this big plume of, of, of tear gas and, and people are running towards you. You're not sure. You know, so so I mean, I think, um, you know, I would encourage them to to continue to advocate protest. Um, but, but, you know, kind of be smart, be safe. Um, and, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that I could give them any advice because I think what I'm hearing at least anecdotally and seeing and, and talking to colleagues, both at the state level, local level is that, um, their voices and their actions are having some effect. And mm-hmm. although, you know, the, the bureaucratic legislative process may take longer than I think a lot of us would want. Um, I do see steps in the right direction when you're talking about specifically in Richmond, you know, council people um, unanimously saying, let's take down the monuments. Um, Two council members talking about no tear gas, no rubber bullets. Um, You know, those sorts of things um, are are really steps in the right direction. Um, And so, um, you know, I'm encouraged, um, but I'm also, I've also, um, sort of been around to, to, to still keep a little bit of cynicism um, until it actually gets done. Um, now, regarding things taking too long, with special session happening in just a couple months, how, you know, if, if good policy comes out of that, how quickly could that be in effect? And I just looked at this for another interview I did. And I th- I'm probably going to get the details wrong, but, but there, it's like the first Monday after the third month of the, that the special session can be, uh, adjourns. So it could be relatively quickly. We, you know, if we did August 1st, maybe it was by January 1st or December 1st, or, you know, in that time frame. Now, at any time we pass in a bill with an emergency clause, that means it comes, it goes into effect um, as soon as the governor signs it. Um, okay. You know, I don't suspect that all of the proposals that come forward will, will garner the 80 votes in the House that it will need to have an emergency clause. Uh, but there will be some. And so, um, you know, we're going to make the case that, that, that we needed these yesterday uh, or probably two weeks ago. Um, but but they will be, you know, we won't have to wait till July 1 of 2021 for, for many of these to go into effect. And to our listeners who would want to get involved in the advocacy, uh, how can they reach out to L- the VLBC and get involved? 
Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, we've got um, uh, email and Twitter and all the social uh, handles, um, obviously reaching out through there. I think um, I'm happy to help connect um, listeners from Richmond or um, other parts of the state with their um with their local delegation so that they can continue, they can call and email and tweet and, and, you know, send Facebook messages and, and however they want to engage. Uh, but it really is going to be this drumbeat of support for these types of proposals. Um, the one thing about, I mean, you can easily, you can Google who's my rep and it'll allow you to put your address in and then you, you can take and write to all their contact information. So um, again, um, just keep engaging, you know, it, on whatever level you're comfortable doing, uh, because if if you're uncomfortable going to a protest, if you're uncomfortable um, picking up the phone, email is great because I know a lot of my colleagues in the House, um, we track emails on issues um, to see who supports, who opposes, kind of what if a group, you know, an organized advocacy group is supportive or opposed or, you know, so, so that is extremely important um, mm-hmm. along with calls and so emails and calls can affect someone's vote is what you're saying. Absolutely. If I see if I see a bunch of emails and calls, specifically folks from the district that I represent or the city at large or central Virginia at large, um, those are um, extremely important to me um, because at the end of the day, I've got to represent their interests. And, um, you know, if they if they want um, me to take a certain position and, and it's overwhelming and, and it's thoughtful and that that will have a major impact on on how I cast a vote or how I or what I advocate for or don't advocate for. Yeah, I think uh, that's one of the diamonds in the rough uh, is that a lot of people don't realize that the state assembly even exists or who yeah. their elected officials are on a state level. Right. And and to that, you know, our state elected officials get few calls and visits and emails as compared with our congressional representation. And so every call, every email, every visit to our state elected leaders goes so much further than you could ever dream. Uh, And uh, yeah, so Delegate Bourne, thanks for giving that shout to give them a call, give them an email or whatever. I mean, and and, and obviously, you know, social media has its place. And and I answered this question again um, in another interview, but um, you know, if it's if if you you know, let's take the legislative Black Caucus's agenda. If people in my district or people in um, Delegate Bagby's district or Senator McClellan or Delegate Jones in Norfolk support that, you know, Twitter, Facebook is a great place to say, hey, we support this. I support this. Thank you, Delegate Jones. Thank you, Senator McClellan. Um, but I would ask if they have nuance or context or if, if they, you know, um, if they're looking for a more thoughtful response or a phone call, you know, like an email is better uh, because then you can lay it out and we can read it and, and be thoughtful about our response uh, rather than just hitting the like button or, you know, tweeting back. Thanks. Mm. You know, you know, so. Of course. But we do. We do like it when folks just say, hey, good job. Keep it up. Thank you. Hey, who does it? Who doesn't? Well, um, on that note, on behalf of the entire Virginia Poverty Law Center team, we'd like to thank you, Delegate Bourne, not just for working on these issues for the past month or the past two months, but really being a servant on these issues to the public for pretty much your entire professional career. 
Oh, well, um, you guys are a pleasure to work with. Um, uh, Christy always, Christy Mara always keeps me straight. Um, keeps you know, all of us straight. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That is true. That is true. Um, and, um, I know we've got some some big issues going on from last legislative session with related to, you know, housing. Um, we we were finally able to get the source of income uh, on the protected class uh, in the fair housing law. You know, we've got this um, sort of public-private partnership incentivizing creation of affordable housing study going on with DHCD and VHDA. Um, we've got cap on late fees this past session. So we, we're, we're, we're making progress, um, but I'll be interested to see what Christy has in store for us uh, in 2021. All right, Jeff, is there anything else you want the listeners to know before you leave us today? Well, I mean, I, I would just say thanks for listening. Um, even listening to me, uh, I know I can go on and on, but uh, if at any point any of the listeners want to reach out and contact me, I'm super accessible. Um you can find me easily on the web, on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook. Um, on the streets. I, I'm on the street. I'm in the streets. Uh, that's right. Uh, I'm not on TikTok. Um, just learned about, you know, my daughter's on there, but I'm not. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I try to make myself as accessible, accessible as possible. And Are you on Twitch? What? What is that? <laughs> Twitch is a, it's a video game streaming. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> No. I want to talk policy with you while you're killing people on Call of Duty. Uh, Come on, delegate. <laughs> no, we. Um, uh, my son is eight, so he has uh, he has a PS4 and uh, Nintendo Switch, um, and so sometimes I'll play with him, but he doesn't have any of those games. All right. Well, thank you so much, delegate. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. We will continue to fight oppressive policies, and we hope you will continue to listen to our show and support however you can. You can easily find all of our shows on your favorite podcast app by searching for The Justice Report. Follow us on Twitter at VPLC or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Virginia Poverty Law Center. If you have any questions, comments, insults, or hey, get rich quick schemes, feel free to email us at radioshow at vplc.org. Thanks for listening to The Justice Report on WRIR 97.3 FM. Tune in every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. to hear about the policies that help or hurt our low-income neighbors. The Justice Report is a project of the Virginia Poverty Law Center. You can learn more about VPLC at vplc.org. And remember, it's never just us for justice. This is The Justice Report.